Good morning, church. Today's scripture will be from Luke 4, verse 31 to 44. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And when a demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And it was, when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him, and have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the elders here at One Covenant Church. And we're really excited that you could worship with us this morning. Our passage this morning continues Luke's account of Jesus beginning his public ministry in Galilee. And if you were with us last week, you heard Pastor Joel tell us about the message of Jesus. It's a message of hope for the poor, the needy, and the captive. It's a message about the kingdom of God breaking into the world and fulfilling the promises of God to his people. And Pastor Joel also told us about how the people of Jesus' hometown, the people of Nazareth, who had grown up with Jesus, who knew him, could not look past their own prejudices to receive that message. But if last week's focus was on the message of Jesus, our passage this morning shows us that message being lived out among the people of another city, the city of Capernaum. We see Jesus preaching. We see him proclaiming the good news directly from the word of God to the people. We see Jesus' power we see Jesus acting with complete authority over both the spiritual and the physical world. There is no sickness that we can have, either physical or spiritual, that is a match for Jesus. But we also see Jesus focused on a singular purpose, preaching the good news of the kingdom of God to the people of God. Jesus would never let the miracles obscure the message because the message offers the greatest healing 
in the entire universe, turning dead sinners into living saints. Our passage begins with a scene, much like the scene that we saw last week. Just as in Nazareth, Jesus is teaching in a synagogue on the Sabbath. Now Luke doesn't tell us the details of Jesus's message because he's already given us an example of Jesus's preaching in verses 18 to 21. But what Luke does tell us are two key facts. First, he tells us that Jesus's preaching was astonishing. The people who heard him were astonished at what they heard. And second, Luke tells us why it was astonishing, because it had authority. Now, why would Jesus, speaking with authority, astonish his listeners in Capernaum? In Jesus' day, preaching in the Jewish world had slid over time into what you might call a sort of academic legalism. Down the centuries, since the, the completion of the Old Testament, rabbis over the years had written commentary after commentary on the Old Testament, and then other rabbis had come along and written commentaries on the commentaries, so that by the time we get to Jesus' day, preaching, in many cases, was just giving your opinions on the words of others, rather than speaking directly from the Bible. So if you heard a sermon in first century Judea, it might have gone something like this. It would have said, well, look, Rabbi A says this about the passage, and Rabbi B says this other thing about the passage. And what that means is that we have a rule that means that all of us need to make sure that we do C, but we also better be sure none of us ever do D. And Jesus would call out exactly this sort of rules-based religion with the religious authorities. In Mark chapter 7, verse 6, Jesus tells them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. Not so with Jesus. The preaching of Jesus is to preach directly from the Bible. Jesus certainly has much to say to us about how we ought to live. So do not think that he doesn't, but that is not the primary driver in Jesus' preaching. His main message is about who he is, who we are, and therefore how we should respond to him. In verses 17 to 21, Jesus proclaimed his coming as the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises that God had made to Israel. And he also tells us exactly who he has come for. The poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed. This is a message of authority. Jesus always starts with himself. Here is who I am. Follow me. Now, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 has some of the greatest ethical teaching ever written. 
and some of the most well-known phrases in all of Christianity, but it does not begin by saying, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is a message of authority because Jesus is teaching directly from the Bible and everything about Jesus' message depends on whether Jesus is who he says he is. And this isn't some out-of-nowhere idea. Jesus is not making up something new and then trying to sell it to everybody. What he's trying to do is teach the people the true meaning of their Bible. Jesus knows the Bible backwards and forwards. In Luke chapter 2, verse 47, he tells us that Jesus, as a 12-year-old boy, was sitting in the temple in Jerusalem, speaking to the teachers of the law and asking them questions, and that he amazed them with his understanding and with his answers. After Jesus' resurrection, Luke tells us that a risen Jesus meets two disciples on a road, and they don't recognize him. And as he's walking along with them, he teaches them about how the entire Old Testament was about Jesus, his coming, his life, his death, and his resurrection. So when Jesus preaches himself to these people, he is not coming up with a new message. He is preaching to them the true message of their Bibles, because the entire Old Testament is about him. And the authority of Jesus is the truth of his words, as he tells the people that the scriptures are exactly about himself. Now, this passage, I think, has a lot to teach us about evangelism. You know, I have always loved the study of Christian apologetics, about understanding the intellectual reasoning behind the Christian faith. And it is time well spent to be able to give good reasons for believing in Jesus as our Savior to those who are not Christian. In fact, the Bible commands us to do so. Peter says, be ready to give an answer to anyone for the hope that you have in Jesus. But I sometimes think that I can be so eager to show others the intellectual justifications for Christianity that we forget that the main thing that people need to see in order to become Christians is Jesus. Because Christianity is often seen by others to be an unintelligent belief, something that people believe because they lack intelligence or they are unsophisticated. I've even found myself trying to make arguments for Christianity, not because I want to win souls for the kingdom of God, but because I want to show everyone how smart I am. Now, if that sounds to you like sinful pride, that's because that's exactly what it is. But as I've gotten older, I have believed more and more that one of the most effective evangelical tools we have is not arguing philosophy. It is not arguing science. 
but it's simply helping others to read the Bible and see who Jesus is for themselves. Our intellects are a gift from God, and God knows that I am quite fond of my own. But intellect alone brings no one into the kingdom of heaven. The Bible tells us our primary problem is not a lack of knowledge. It is that we reject the knowledge we have because our hearts are evil. Later in this passage, we are going to see a demon who has perfectly sound theology. He knows exactly who Jesus is. But at the risk of stating the obvious, no one can go to heaven by doing something a demon can do. Knowing the right facts about Jesus is not the same as knowing Jesus. So when we want to preach Jesus to others, we should preach the way that Jesus preached. Jesus pointed to the Bible and to himself as the primary focus of the Bible, and we should do the same. But the power of Jesus' message is not only in his words. As Jesus is preaching, a man possessed by a demon cries out, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So as we just said a minute ago, this demon recognizes Jesus for who he is. And right here, I think Luke wants us to see a contrast, a very sad, a very tragic contrast, and that is this. The people of God who grew up with Jesus in his hometown could not see Jesus for who he really was, but a demon could. Now, this demon isn't confessing Jesus as the Holy One of God out of any sense of respect. Most likely, he's trying to assert his own authority over Jesus by calling him out. It's like in a movie where the hero is in disguise and then one of the bad guys points at him and says, wait a second, I know who you are. But of course, this demon's attempt is pathetic and it fails immediately because Jesus displays his spiritual power by rebuking the demon immediately and saying, be silent and come out of him. And one simple command is all it takes. The demon is helpless and obeys because he must. Now in Jesus' day, there were many people who claimed to have spiritual power. In Jesus' day, there were people who said that they had the power to cast out demons. Now, these people could be Jews or they could be pagans. And generally, they would engage in elaborate rituals, chants, and ceremonies and try to convince everybody that they were casting out demons. And needless to say, most, if not all, were complete frauds. Now, lest we engage in what C.S. Lewis used to call chronological snobbery, and think that we are so much more smart and sophisticated than ancient people who fell for that kind of thing. A very vibrant industry in psychics, horoscopes, and tarot cards says otherwise. With Jesus, nothing of this sort is required. Jesus doesn't need to do rituals. He doesn't need to chant. He doesn't need any ceremonies. All it takes is his word. 
a word of authority. He simply commands, and the demon is forced to obey. By doing so, Jesus is proving the reality of the message that he is preaching. He is preaching freedom for captives. And immediately, he provides that freedom to a man held captive by an evil spirit. And after he does this, the people react. They react immediately, and they say, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Afterward, Jesus shows us that his power is not restricted to spiritual healing. He leaves the synagogue and he stays in the house of Simon. Now, Simon will ultimately become one of Jesus' disciples and he will be renamed Peter. But Simon's mother-in-law is ill with a high fever. Now, because of the modern world we live in with modern medicine, I think it can be a little easy for us to gloss over those words, high fever. But this is a world with no hospitals, a world with no antibiotics, a world with no paracetamol. And so in those days, a high fever was a serious matter. It wasn't just a minor inconvenience. And Jesus heals the fever, again, immediately. In fact, Luke tells us that he rebuked the fever, which I think is a great, a great description. He rebuked the demon, and he rebuked the fever. The coming of Jesus is rebuking everything in this world that does not conform to the perfection that God has in store for it, whether spiritual or physical. And Simon's mother-in-law sets a fantastic example for each one of us as Christians. Having received healing from Jesus, what does she do? She immediately gets up and starts to serve him. Now, it's the Sabbath, and on the Sabbath, the traditions of Jesus' time meant that people didn't do very much and they didn't travel very far. In fact, going back to what we said earlier about tradition layered upon tradition, a huge part of that tradition were a lot of elaborate rules and regulations about what you were or weren't allowed to do on a Sabbath. And later on in Jesus' ministry, he's going to create conflict with religious authorities by not following those rules and pointing out that those rules really aren't true to the Bible. But the Sabbath traditionally ended at sunset. And immediately as the sun is going down, people from throughout the community, from throughout Capernaum, are coming to Jesus seeking healing, both spiritual and physical. Now, Luke tells us not only that Jesus healed every single person who came to them, he also gives us a critical detail. He tells us that Jesus laid his hands on every one of them. In fact, later on, lepers will come to Jesus and will say, if you will, you can make me clean. And not only does Jesus heal them, he reaches out and he touches them. And he says, I will be clean. For those of us who have grown up in church, it can be easy for us to become blasé about the sheer power of Jesus. 
We think of him as our teacher, and we think of him as our Lord, but because of his humility, because of his unwillingness to wield his power for, its own, for his own sake and to display it, we forget that the man who laid his hands on these people in a small town in a Roman backwater over 2,000 years ago is the same man who created and sustains the universe that we live in. How easily do we gloss over the power of Jesus in our lives? How easily do we slip into becoming prayerless? Do you struggle the way I do to come to God in prayer? Consider then the Jesus that you see here, a savior of unlimited power over all creation, both physical and spiritual, and yet a man who comes near to everyone who comes to him. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 tells us that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. Our Savior is not distant. He is near us even now. And like the people of Capernaum, we need to draw near so that we too can be healed in our lives as only Jesus can. We do not have the power that Jesus did. But we do have the power to love and to heal in this world through our love for one another. We live in a world that is difficult, a world that is busy, and a world that is lonely. It may not be the same kind of miracle, but when we reach out, when we take the time to love that difficult person who needs to be loved right now, this day, regardless of whether it fits into our schedules, we are showing the nearness of Jesus to the world around us. We are showing people that they are not alone, that the love of Christ is present. As a good friend of mine and a wonderful pastor said last year, love is inefficient. And when we embrace that inefficiency, we are living just as Jesus did. Was it efficient to lay hands on God knows how many people at sunset in Capernaum? No. But when we are inefficient with our love, we are doing as Jesus did, and we are preaching as Jesus preached. And now our story takes another turn. Our story gets astonishing again, because the next day, Jesus leaves Capernaum. He goes out. He's made a bit of a stir. He's gained some notoriety. People are talking about him, not just in Capernaum, but everywhere nearby. But he goes out to a desolate place, and in Mark's gospel, he tells us that he went out there to pray. Now, everyone comes looking for him. The people of Capernaum catch up to them, and at this point, he astonishes them and us. He tells them that he needs to go elsewhere in order to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. In other words, his mission is not to stay in Capernaum and gain fame by healing people some more. The key words are these, for I was sent for this purpose. So here Jesus reveals his primary purpose to them and he reveals it to us. His miracles are powerful and they change people's lives. 
but they aren't the main point. In the Gospels, we see Jesus make the lame walk, make the blind see, feed thousands of people, and even raise the dead. And time after time, throughout the gospel, people come to Jesus, even his own family, and encourage him to keep doing miracles to build a following. In John's gospel, after Jesus does his most famous miracle, probably the miracle of Jesus that everyone, even non-Christians, knows, he feeds 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And afterwards, he says the people were going to try and forcibly take him and make him their king, but he slips away. And the next day, we find out just why those people that he fed wanted to make him king. It wasn't because they believed in him as the Messiah. It was because they wanted more food. How often, when God gives us something that we want, do we start loving the gift more than the giver? So miracles are not the main thing, even if they do show us just how powerful a Savior we have. The reason the miracles aren't the main thing is because a person can be healed. They can have a demon cast out of them. They can be fed, but not one of those things will bring anyone into heaven. Jesus' mission is to preach the gospel because it is the gospel that brings the kingdom of God to this earth and to every one of us. Now, sickness and demons are ugly and they are terrible, but they're symptoms. They're not the disease. The disease that produces, I can't talk. <laughs> the disease that pollutes this creation, the disease that makes creation groan, the disease that condemns men and women to hell. Men and women that you and I know and talk to and love every day of our lives, that disease is unforgiven sin. Did you ever read these accounts of Jesus performing miracles and wish that you were there? Have you ever said to yourself, I know I have, that if I had seen Jesus raise Lazarus up to life and see him walk out of that tomb, or if I had eaten some of that food that Jesus gave 5,000 people, that it would be easier for me to have a stronger faith? That it would make it a lot simpler for me to follow Jesus and to do what Jesus tells me to do, to be a follower of Jesus? I've thought about that from time to time. But when I read the Bible, I realize that I'm probably wrong. And I'll tell you why. In the Bible, the record of miracles producing genuine faith is mixed at best. The people who heard Jesus teach with authority and the people who saw Jesus heal the sick are the same people who cried out, crucify him on Good Friday. But in a different way, we get to see greater miracles than we realize. Have you ever seen someone receive the gospel and believe in Jesus as their savior? If you have, I would submit to you that you have witnessed the greatest miracle that this world has to offer. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, does not say that we were sick in our trespasses and sins. It does not say that we were crippled by our sins. It says that we were dead in our sins. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says that if we are in Jesus, we are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The coming of the kingdom of God is the complete redemption and transformation of this world into everything that God has intended it to be. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. And so every time another sinner turns to Jesus and is washed clean of their sins, past, present, and future, this kingdom breaks into the world a little bit more. What does it say to us about the priorities that you and I have when we pray? What do we pray for? What do I long for? Do I pray mostly for comfort and prosperity for me, my family, and the people I love? Do I pray mostly for earthly treasures? Or do we pray for the heavenly treasure of seeing the dead raised to life by faith in Jesus Christ? Do you want to see miracles? Don't preach your own cleverness. Preach Jesus. Do you want to see miracles? Draw near to Jesus in prayer and live out the love of Jesus with people who are hard to love. I'm 44 years old, and I have not seen many people argued into the kingdom of heaven. I have seen many people loved into the kingdom of heaven. Do you want to see miracles? Remember that Jesus raised a dead sinner like you and a dead sinner like me to life, and that by God's grace, we are his instruments in raising the dead around us in a way that will endure to eternity. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you that you do not come to us merely with good advice. You do not come to us merely with good morals. You come to us with transformation. Please, Father, help us to trust you and to receive that transformation and to show it to those around us, to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.